for almost the entirety of the last 13 years. When I get up to preach, whether it's on a Sunday or a Wednesday or something else during the week, <clears throat> I say the same prayer. It started probably like 12 and a half years ago. And uh, I tell like people sometimes, but like usually I don't, but I'm, I'm kind of in the story now, so I have to. Because um, I haven't prayed it yet, so I'm, I'm going to pray it so you guys can hear it. And I've, uh, I've shared this with like my Bible study uh, group that we meet on, on Tuesdays. Thank you. Hannah, everyone give a hand for my wife. She's amazing. I love you. She didn't say it back, so we're going to have to talk about that later. Uh, <laughs> no, it's a very simple prayer that I pray. It's a very simple one. And it goes like this. Lord, if there is something that you want me to say that I'm not planning to say, give it to me in the moment. And Lord, if there's something that I'm planning to say that you don't want me to, that in some way it's going to put up a barrier between someone and you, make me forget, and when I look at my notes, don't let me see it. It's a very simple prayer. But I, I, I don't know if like during my sermon prep, if I like miss it a lot, but I always like when I'm preaching, there's something almost every Sunday, every Wednesday or whatever that, that I don't end up saying. And sometimes I've thrown it into a, like a different sermon at another time. Maybe it was an illustration or a joke or something. Sometimes it's a, a point or something that I was trying to make really poignant. But the, the reason that I'm, I'm sharing that with you and the reason that I, I wanted you guys to see that is every once in a while, I, I, I love this about Pastor Scott. He'll come up here and he'll be like, you guys got really, really good notes but we're not going to use them. And, and, and at the same time, it's, it's, it's difficult, right? Because, you know, the people put a lot of work into making that happen every week. We have a handful of people that proofread, that come in uh, as volunteers to print and stuff and fold and put things together. We, we have a graphic designer who builds out a beautiful bulletin and beautiful sermon notes every single week. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something similar, but not quite to that effect. And that is that the notes are really good. I know, I wrote them. And uh, what's really convenient is the, the answers to the blanks are at the bottom. Okay. And so I'm not going to probably at any point during the next 20 or 30 minutes I'm up here um, say point number one, point number two, point number three. Uh, but you guys, you can follow along. You can, you can fill in the blanks as, as you would like. But just like communion, hey, buddy. Just wants to come up to the altar, that's okay. Just like communion was a little different, our message this morning is a little different. And the way that I'm going to share with you this morning is a, a little different. And so I hope you uh, would humor me. Every single time I've come up here to preach, I always have told Michelle and David Taylor, you can get rid of the chair, I don't sit uh, when I preach. I'm just, I'm, I'm too fidgety, and so I, I mask it as just really intentional positioning to make sure I'm talking to people. But I'm just fidgety, really. Uh, but, but today, I actually have some reading I have to do, believe it or not. And so, thank you, Bruce, again for the, the lovely stand. I wanted to talk to you today about a few things. As you know, we've been going over the new core values of our church, Belle Isle Community Church. And the core value we're talking about today is family. And the message of family 
is going to be woven throughout the entirety of, of what I share with you over the next little bit. And that passage in Deuteronomy is the one that talks about how uh, uh, the, the Lord was constantly on their hearts and they were teaching their, their children everything that they knew about God. And because of that, the church was expanding. It was growing. Faith in God was uh, prolific because people were sharing with the younger generation. And so here at Bell Isle Community Church, we are every generation growing together. We want to highlight that every generation matters. From, from the infants to the toddlers to the, the people who are older than being a toddler. I'm just going to stop. That's everybody else. I'm not going to go any more specific. But there is a, uh, a great story about family uh, that I'm actually really excited to get to, to share with you. And that is a story uh, found in the book of Philemon. So you can turn there to, to, to Philemon, and we're going to spend a whole lot of time in that book. And if it takes you a minute to find it, that's okay. It's literally like one page long. And uh, just so you know, I got real scared there for a second. I thought, I thought I was about to lose it all. Um, <laughs> the book of Philemon is really short. If you're having trouble finding it, there is a table of contents at the front of the Bible. It's, I don't know if you use it, the Holy Spirit does, but I think he would rather you find it than, than you shuffle for like the next 20 minutes. So it's okay. But once you get there, I want you to get there. We're not going to read just yet. Once you get there, I actually want you to do something. I want you to mark that place, and then I want you to take your Bible, and I want you to set it down. So I'm going to read you a story. And while I read you this story, I want you to really pay attention to it. I know it's going to be hard after what John Bryant said, that balloon's going to pop in the middle of my story. But I want you to really listen. There's a movie that I saw when I was in college called A Better Life. The, uh, the star of the movie, I'm not going to pretend to try and pronounce his name. I believe that it is Spanish for Damien, but I'm not positive. He uh, was nominated for an Academy Award. And it's a movie that I suspect probably no one in here has ever seen before. It's not a well-known movie, which kind of shocks me that, that the movie with, you know, in 2011, he was nominated for Best Actor. Uh, but it's, it's not a well-known movie. But it's powerful. And it deals with family. And it deals with the topic of my message this morning, reconciliation. And so as I read you this story, it's going to be from the movie, what the movie's about, some of the setting. Uh, there's going to be a few main characters that I'm going to refer to. And so we're going to put a slide up on the screen. It's got the faces of these four people, and it's got their names so that, that you know. We're, we're talking about Carlos, Blasco, Louise, and Santiago. These four people make up some of the main characters in this movie, A Better Life. And so I'm going to read this to you. It's the story of a man named Carlos. Carlos is one of those guys who stands around on the street corner with a bunch of other guys, uh, hoping to get some work that day. Uh, Carlos had come across the border with his wife from Mexico, and they lived together for, for quite a while. But America changed her a bit. She wanted more than Carlos could provide for her, so shortly after their son Luis was born, she deserted them. Carlos was now an illegal, unemployed, single parent, living 
in a strange land, battling day to day just to provide a life for his son. Standing on the corner one day, a guy named Blasco chose him. Blasco owned a truck and a landscaping business, and Carlos became his most loyal and diligent worker. And so he had steady work as he worked with Blasco every single day. A couple of years later, Blasco told him, I'm going back to Mexico, and I want to sell my truck and my business, and I'd like to sell it to you. And Carlos was excited. He was like, how much do you want? He said, $10,000. It's the opportunity of a lifetime. Because if he could get the truck and the business, all of a sudden he could provide a better life for his son. The problem was Carlos didn't have any money. He'd been saving it for the last several years, ever since he came to America working. He'd been saving it so he could hire a lawyer and get legal. He hired a lawyer. The lawyer stole his money and ran. Couldn't go to the cops. They would just deport him. And so he had none left. All he wanted was a better life for his son, Luis, a better neighborhood, a better school. He was 14 years old. He, he started skipping school. He'd become Americanized. He and his relationship with his dad wasn't doing too well. I don't know how many dads in here might relate to wanting to provide a, a better life for your kids than maybe you had growing up. The gangs that were prevalent in the, the barrio they lived in were wooing uh, Louise, and, and it was just, Carlos knew that this next season in his son's life was critical. His future was hanging in the balance, and he was torn. And the next day, because he couldn't afford the truck, Blasco put it on the market. So Carlos went back to where he started, that same street corner from the beginning of the movie. He stood there hoping to find work with a whole bunch of people. At the end of the day, he was one of two still standing on the street corner. The other was a guy named Santiago. He was kind. He offered Carlos some bread. And Carlos initially refused, but eventually he accepted, and they ate some bread together. He was uh, a little grateful, actually, that he didn't get to work that day because he was able to make a new friend in Santiago. But he realized that if every other day is like this, pretty soon he's not going to have a better life for his son, but an even worse one. So he called his sister, who was also living in the United States, and asked her for a loan, $10,000, to buy the truck and the company. She came over that night with an envelope with $10,000 in it. He wasn't expecting that. Uh, she hadn't talked to her husband because she knew that he would say no. And Carlos asked her, where did you get the money? And she said, we've been putting a little apart from every check that we've made since we came to America. It's our family emergency medical fund in case something happens with one of the kids. And Carlos is like, I can't use that. And she said, use it. It's your only chance. So he took the money. He called his friend Blasco, and the next morning he buys the truck. The following day, first day with the truck, he goes to that same street corner that he had been standing on for years. And there's a whole crowd of people looking for work, waving their hands, kind of shouting like, choose me, choose me. And he sees in the back the guy who shared some bread with him, Santiago. And he points to him. Santiago pushes his way through the crowd, jumps in the truck, and they go out for their first day 
at work. One of the things that Carlos had to do in this landscaping business was, if you've ever seen it, they get these um, like belts that wrap, it's like a harness, but then it's got like a big leather strap and they'll climb up a tree with that. And so using like the, the leverage and, and weight against that, they, they won't fall, right? But they, they slowly climb their way up this tree, right? And these, uh, these, these palm trees, they were really tall. It was, it was in Los Angeles and, and Carlos just loved to look out over the city. It took a little while to get up there. Before he went, he threw his jacket down inside his jacket were his cell phone and his car keys. When he got to the top, he looked up over LA, loving the view, but knowing that he needed to get to work, so he looked down to ask Santiago to throw the tool up to him. But Santiago wasn't there. And then he looked down to his jacket and his cell phone and his truck keys, and they weren't there either. As he looked across the lawn to the street, he could see Santiago running towards the truck and realized he was going to take it. Panicking. Realizing what's about to happen. He starts trying to get down from the tree as fast as possible, but it's, it's slow going. By the time he runs across the yard, Santiago is in the truck, and the truck is down the street. He stole it. And with the truck, he stole his sister's emergency medical fund, and he stole his son's hope for a better life. Carlos, understandably, was livid. He was heartbroken. So, so now he's a livid, heartbroken, illegal, unemployed, single parent in a strange land with a $10,000 debt he can never repay. What a desperate place to be. He searched with Louise all over the barrio, all over southern L.A., looking for Santiago, hoping to find him so they could get the truck back. Finally, they find him at a nightclub where he works as a dishwasher. Carlos chases him out of the kitchen. Louise is waiting for Santiago in the parking lot, and he tackles him. Carlos pulls Louise off, and he, he kind of grabs Santiago by the collar, and he's like, where's my truck? Santiago tells Carlos, I sold it on the black market for $3,000, and I sent it to my family in El Salvador. <laughs> With that, Carlos realized it was over. There's nothing he could do. Who's your Santiago? Who is the person who ripped you off? There's someone in your life who took advantage of you, who hurt you so deeply, you haven't even gotten to the bottom of the pain yet. Someone in your life who made a choice that, that reversed your fortunes and you're still trying to dig out. Is, is anyone coming to your mind? I'm not going to tell you what happens in the rest of the movie. Uh, again, it's called A Better Life. I highly recommend it. It's a great movie. You should watch it. I don't want to spoil the ending. Uh, but I'm going to provide for you this morning an alternate ending for two reasons. One, again, I don't want to spoil it. And two, I happen to think that my ending is better. I think mine's uh, better, though, simply because outside of Christ, it would never and could never happen. And so I'm going to read you my, my alternate ending uh, if you guys would, would hit the dramatic music, we're going to enter into the, to the story here. Might need to turn that down a little bit. So, we left Carlos angry and bitter. Over the next few months, he gets more and more angry 
and more and more bitter. Louis is hopeless. He was initiated into a gang. It's the only place that he can find community. His body has become a canvas for gang tats and bruises from street fights. Carlos can't face his sister. He's so ashamed he doesn't even return her phone calls anymore. He actually considers trying to go back over the border to Mexico, and he's convinced he's probably the only person who's really ever thought of that, because surely it was better there than here. His bitterness is eating him alive. Now, Carlos is an acrimonious, heartbroken, illegal, unemployed, single parent in a strange land with a $10,000 debt he could never repay and an estranged sister and a son flushing his life down the toilet. All because of a guy named Santiago. He hates Santiago. Six months later, there's a knock on his door. He opens it. Anyone want to take a wild guess who's standing there? Jamie Foxx. No. <laughs> Santiago. In that moment, he opens the door. And all of the anger and the rage and the bitterness boils to the surface as he sees the guy standing in the doorway who in his mind has brought him to this place in his life. So what does he do? He rushes at him. He's like, I'm gonna get my hands around his neck. Before he can, Santiago takes a half step back and he holds up an envelope and says, wait, 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 before you hurt me, just read this. And on the envelope is the name Carlos. And Carlos sees it and it gives him pause because he recognizes the handwriting. It's his sister. Confused, he takes the envelope from Santiago, walks back into his living room, and he reads it. And this is what it says. Dear Carlos, I miss you, and I love you. I know you're a good man, and I want to draw on that kindness in you. And I want to ask you to do me a favor. I've gotten to know Santiago since your unfortunate experience with him. He's told me, how badly he feels for destroying your dream. He knows he was wrong. I shared Christ with him, and he's given himself over to Jesus. He's really changed, Carlos. I've seen it with my own eyes. He wants to come, and he wants to work with you again. And I want to ask you to forgive him, trust him, and take him in like he's part of your family and treat him with love. Will you do that? If you can't do it for him, please, please, Carlos, do it for me. I hope to visit you soon. Until then, please show grace and kindness to Santiago with much love, your sister. Can you feel the tension? It's almost an unfair thing to ask, isn't it? especially sending Santiago to deliver the letter. I mean, come on, he's, he's standing right there. That, that's got to be hard. Two questions immediately popped into my mind. Why in the world would Carlos ever forgive him? And how in the world could Carlos ever forgive him?
The book of Philemon answers those two questions for Carlos. But if we're being honest, we're not really talking about Carlos, are we? Carlos is a character in a movie. He's not real. What we're talking about is us. We're talking about our, our own unforgiveness, our own bitterness. If anyone happens to have my exact same Bible, which I'm almost positive you don't, Philemon is on page 1780. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I'm not holding my breath. <laughs> Philemon. Mm. You see, the life that, that we live in is a life of relationships, and everything we do flows out of that. There is someone, probably multiple people, if I really wanted to think about it and make a list, who've ripped me off, who've uh, done me wrong, who've turned uh, my life upside down. There is definitely, I could name someone in my life, who has hurt me so deeply that I have not gotten to the bottom of that pain yet. It's a long process. So the person that's dominating your thoughts right now, the name that's been on your mind since you first heard what Santiago did to Carlos, I don't want you to forget that name. Matter of fact, if you have a pen in your hand, I want you to write it down. Or if you don't have a pen, you've got your phone, I want you to make a note on your phone and write it down. I want you to remember the name that's in your head right now. And we'll get back to that in a second. You know, they say refusing to give someone is like drinking poison and, and expecting the other person to die, right? Because ultimately, what does it do? It, it weighs us down. It makes us sick. It hurts us. Unforgiveness just eats away at us. Uh, there was a, a theologian said, the moment I start hating a man, I become his slave, and in Ephesians 4.32, Paul talks about this. Paul tells us uh, to be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving Santiago just as in Christ God forgave you and Santiago. Forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Colossians 3, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, therefore, those of you that have been transformed by Christ, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive each other. The Lord forgave you. We've read those passages. You've heard in your lives a dozen, probably more than a dozen sermons on forgiveness. But really today we're not talking about forgiveness. We're talking about reconciliation, and they're two very different things, and that's why the title of this sermon is The Truth About Reconciliation. But I'm going to string you along a little bit longer. We're not going to get to the truth about it just yet, because I want to go through this uh, list. I've, I've, pulled, I've pulled a Pastor Scott. Okay, cool story. I've pulled the Pastor Scott. Give me that mic. In case it's this, yeah, just thank you. It's not, okay, it's not me. I'll just keep talking loudly. Okay, thank you though, Hannah. Um, so, 
I've come up with a list of reasons why we choose not to forgive people. Let me know if any of these sound in any way familiar to you or in any way speak to you. Uh, number one, oh, right, 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 I was setting this up with a joke. So I'm pulling a Pastor Scott, and I've got a whole list of things that aren't in your notes, um, and I'm sure he would be very proud. So I can't wait for him to, to find this out and watch this. Um, forgiving someone, point number one, forgiving someone makes me look weak, and I need to be strong. Maybe some of us have thought that before. The fact of the matter is, God isn't interested in my strength. He's interested in me trusting him. That's all he cares about. doesn't need me to be strong. Number two, I'm right and I don't have to give in. One of the biggest reasons we don't want to forgive people is because, well, doggone it, I'm right. And they're wrong. Life isn't about that. It's about life. And death, it's a lot more serious than who wins an argument. Number three, holding the debt against them gives me control, and I need to be in control. Friends, you are in control of nothing, not even your own lives. God is sovereign. You know what sovereign means? He's in control. A lot of it. All of it. Number four, if I forgive, I may get hurt again. I need to protect myself. The truth is you can't protect yourself. We live in a fallen world. You're going to get hurt again whether you forgive or not. Number five, it might be too painful. The whole process might be too painful. What you got to remember is that holding on to the pain, the pain will drain into other areas of life. Holding on to bitterness doesn't relieve the pain. Number six, if I ignore the problem, it'll go away. No, it won't. It's also terrible advice with bullies, by the way. (laughs) Don't ignore and excuse abusive behavior. Address it. Correct it. Number seven, I want them to pay for it. They need to be punished. Learn a lesson Right, so my withholding forgiveness in some way is, is, is punishing them. The fact of the matter is they're probably not even noticing, right? Do you think Santiago knows or cares whether or not Carlos forgives him in the moment? Uh, Romans twelve seventeen. do not repay anyone for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, recognizing not everyone will respond to it, but as much as it depends on you, Live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. He won't know how to respond to grace. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Number eight, another excuse. I'm going to wait for the offending party to come to me. Show of hands, who's actually experienced that where they eventually came to you? Almost never, especially not if it's serious, serious, right? Maybe small things, or maybe they've had that encounter with Christ, right? (laughs) But that may never happen, and they may never feel sorry. 
Number nine, I don't feel like forgiving them, so forgiving them would be hypocritical. And we're getting deep now, aren't we? Forgiving them would be hypocritical. Can I tell you something? First sermon I ever preached here was on the indwelling Christ. So you guys know that you have Jesus inside of you, right? As you can respond. You know you got Jesus inside of you. Awesome. Do you know what Jesus really loves to do? Forgive. And if being hypocritical is doing something that is contrary to your nature, your nature is to forgive. So unforgiveness is hypocritical, whether you want to do it or not. I'll let that one go. We'll go to the next point. Number 10. I'm waiting for a convenient time and a feeling of love for that person. It's never going to be a convenient time, and you may never love the person. Okay? (laughs) What's amazing about the story that I just told you from A Better Life and the story that we're about to read in Philemon is that this goes way beyond forgiveness. Like I said, we're not talking about forgiveness. We're talking about reconciliation. One person can forgive. I can forgive someone by myself, in my house, and I can just let it go. Reconciliation requires two. It requires me and that other person reconnecting. So let's, let's do a, uh, uh, an illustration here. Say you're at Publix getting their famous pub sub. And while you're standing in line, you spot Santiago come in the grocery store. What do you do? Do you stay in line? Do you avert your gaze? Do you do everything you can to not be seen? Or say you're like walking down the dessert aisle, like the, the ice cream aisle, and you see him come in the other end. Do you scoot over to the pizza aisle and pretend like there's something you wanted over there? Or, when you see your Santiago, do you walk up to them, greet them warmly, lovingly, like you're greeting a friend? The grocery store test. If you can't do that, if you can't walk up to them, if you can't greet them warmly and lovingly, guess what? There hasn't been reconciliation yet. It's a really simple test. It's also a really, really uncomfortable one. The reason that reconciliation requires two is because forgiveness says, I'm going to get over it. Whether I've gotten over it or not, I'm going to let it go. Reconciliation. Here's here's the thing. If you only take one note, the entirety of this message, if you only write one thing down, if you remember one thing when you go out to lunch in a little bit, this is that thing. Okay? Reconciliation is about enemies Becoming friends, not being okay with the existence of another person, but recognizing that they are your brother or they are your sister in Christ. Forgiveness says, I'm letting it go. Reconciliation says, I love you. And I will always love you because you are my brother, you are my sister. So reconciliation is about enemies becoming friends. It requires me uh, uh, working out something with someone else, starting a new relationship. It's much deeper than forgiveness. It's much more difficult than forgiveness. Philemon shows us an everyday situation, an everyday example of everything that Paul teaches on reconciliation. And then finally we learn why we should do it, 
and how we can do it. So, in Philemon, here's how the letter starts. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, he was most likely in Ephesus in prison while he was writing this letter. Uh, prisoner of Christ Jesus, uh, and Timothy, uh, our brother to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. Who is Philemon? Philemon is the leader of the church at Colossae. Okay? So, so here's, here's what's going on. He is the, the, the leader of the church at Colossae, and so Paul has this letter to him. Uh, he goes on to say, to Aphia, our sister, that was Philemon's wife, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is not just a throwaway verse in, in verse 3, by the way. He wasn't just saying that to be nice. It wasn't just opening a letter. No, he was saying, what I'm saying to you right now, what I'm talking to you about right now, is about peace, and that peace comes by the grace of God. And I want you to know that's what this letter is about, grace to you and peace. His goal is in the context of grace. I want you to live at peace with one another. So here's the short story. Okay, here's, here's who these people are. Uh, can we go back to the main character slide real quick? I'm going I'm to walk you through these people. Philemon is Carlos. Okay, in this, in this story, Philemon is Carlos. All right. Blasco doesn't exist, ignore him. <laughs> Louise, well, um, I misspoke, Santiago, sorry. Santiago is Onismus. We haven't, we haven't read uh, to Onismus yet, but, but Philemon has been betrayed. He had a slave. That slave was Onismus. Okay. Onismus stole from Philemon. He, one day Philemon was, was out. He wasn't at home. Onismus was his slave, his servant. He stole from him, and he booked it. He disappeared. He did something wrong, and he left. Philemon comes home. And this large amount of money is gone. So is Onismus. Who do you think did it? Probably Onismus. Onismus is the Santiago in our story. Paul is the sister. Because Paul is talking with his, uh, his sort of new helper, uh, some translations say Tychius, some say Tychicus. It's, it's a weird name. It's hard to pronounce. I don't know. So I'm just going to say Tychius, and if you have an extra C in yours, that's okay. God knows who we're talking about. So Paul goes to Tychius, and he says, hey, I have this letter I wrote. We know it as Colossians. I need you to deliver it to the church at Colossae. You see, Paul was in Ephesus. He was in prison, and all of a sudden, he meets this guy, Onesimus. And he knows Onismus because he knows Philemon. And he knows what Onismus did to Philemon. And while Paul was in jail, Onismus comes to him and he shares the gospel. Onismus receives Christ. Okay? Gets, gets salvation. His life is radically changed. And now Paul's got a problem. <laughs> He's like, I got this guy Philemon who leads the church in Colossae. And he's harboring murderous anger at his former slave Onismus, who ran away and rightfully should go back to his master, but now he's also his brother in Christ. What do you do with that? 
And so, again, Paul talks to Tychius and tells him, hey, take this uh, letter, Colossians, to the, the leader of the church at Colossae. And Tychius goes, that's, uh, that's Philemon, right? And Paul's like, yeah, 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 you're going you're gonna to take Onesimus with you. And Tychius is like, you want me to take Onesimus to deliver a letter to Philemon? And Paul's like, you know what? I should probably write a letter about that too. And so he sits down and he drafts this letter to Philemon and gives it to Onesimus to deliver. That story that I made up about the ending of A Better Life is exactly what Paul does. That's why he plays the, the, the sister. Martin Luther in his commentary writes uh, that in this, uh, in this story, Paul is actually playing the role of Christ, which is, is very true. So um, we're going to get back to that in a second. We got a, a fun illustration that, uh, that we're going to do. So getting back into the text, we're going to jump back in a little bit. I always thank uh, my God as I remember you in my prayers. This is verse 4. Because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. Again, not a throwaway statement. He's talking about how Philemon is a loving man. And the reason he's loving is because he trusts Jesus, not just for salvation, but for living day by day. So um, after he uh, decides, okay, we're going to have Anismus deliver this letter, and he's going to take it to Philemon, this is kind of what happens. Imagine we're back at that moment. There's a knock on the door. Philemon goes to the door. He opens it. Who's standing there? Onismus. And Philemon, this loving, grace-filled church leader, goes for his throat. Onismus takes a step back and holds up a letter. Philemon recognizes the handwriting. Paul did a lot of letter writing. <laughs> it's like a third of our New Testament. So he recognizes the handwriting. He sees that it's Paul's, and he reads it. It's these words from, from Paul asking him to forgive Onesimus, to be reconciled to him. And the question, of course, is, is how and why. And both of those questions are answered in verse 6, which is kind of the whole point of it. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. Mm. What is he saying? He's getting God involved, recognizes that Philemon's not going to be able to do this on his own. And then, and then he says it's uh, to become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. So there is a deeper understanding, a fuller understanding of our relationship with God that comes when we are reconciled. He says, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. So here's the why. Why would you do this? It is because it leads to a fuller experience of Christ. It's not just us. It's, it's in Christ. And so Paul is saying, if you want to experience life in Christ, I mean, if I had to have a show of hands, let's just do that. Who wants to experience a full life of Christ? I'm watching. Okay, good. Everyone put their hands up. All right. If you didn't, I'm praying for you. <laughs> no, but like everyone wants that, right? And so if reconciliation is one of the ways by which we achieve that, 
then we need to pursue it. So how do I do it? So again, the beginning of that verse, I pray that you be active in sharing your faith. So in a second, I'm going to ask some people uh, to come up. I'll need two volunteers, not not just yet. Um, But uh, there is a word that was really popular um, when I was younger, and even it started probably in the 70s uh, as well. Uh, So some of you may have heard this before. The word is koinonia. Have you guys heard this word? Yeah, because it was, it was kind of a big thing. It was, like, it was like a hot topic for a long time, right? And what is koinonia? It's a Greek word that means body life. It means body life. We, we say fellowship, but nowadays fellowship feels more like an after-church potluck than body life, right? But, but what is that? Paul is, is, when he's saying that you're active in sharing your faith, the word sharing is koinonia, we read that and we think, so we'll have a fuller experience of Christ when we evangelize, when you share your faith. But that's not what he's saying. It's not about evangelism. What he's saying is that you will experience Christ fully when you are in koinonia with him. And koinonia with others. Paul is making a very, very, very important thing. Don't miss it. A very important point that we have to experience koinonia, not just with God, but with our brothers and our sisters. And so Paul is saying, don't you know, Philemon, you're my brother. I love you. You're grace-filled and you're loving and you're awesome and, and I'm connected to you. It's a very intimate way that he talks about Philemon. Your love brings me joy. And then what does he say about Onismus in Philemon? He says, and, and here is Onismus, my son, be reconciled to him. And Paul goes on to say, I could order you to do it, but I'm not going to. I'm going to instead appeal to you on the basis of love that you would be reconciled to Onesimus, that you would take him in, that you would not just forgive him, but that you would trust him, that you would love him the way that you love me and the way that I love you and the way that we love God. This is a drama, though, playing out in Philemon. And so I need, I need two volunteers, I need two guys to just run up here on stage. I will say names, I'm not afraid. Thank you, Garrett. One more. One more. Angelo, can you come up? Thank you, brother. I love it. Everyone gets nervous. They're like, oh, what are you going to make me do? You're right to be nervous. This is going to be super awkward. <laughs> it's not awkward. All right, Angela, if you could just stand over here and just face the wall. And then Gary, if you could come over here. Okay. And you can just, you can face that way as well. And so who's who? Okay, so over here we got Onismus. Okay, this is Onismus. Sorry, Angela. All right. And then over here we got Philemon. And Paul, I'm Paul right now, is talking to Philemon and he's like, hey, you see that guy over there? He's my son. You know, I love this guy. And I need you to be reconciled to him. And so instead of just ignoring the issue, Paul plays the role of Christ. So let's talk about that for a second. All right, same people. I'm Christ now, okay? This is sinful mankind. Again, sorry, Angelo. All right, this is sinful mankind. Okay, over here we got God the Father, okay? So you are talking to me, God the Son, and you're like, I need you to go down there I need you to fix that, right? That's what, that's what God is telling Jesus, right? So God is sending the Son to sinful mankind to bring reconciliation. So I'm coming over, doing my little walk, okay? Become human, 
still fully God, fully man, and I come over to sinful mankind, and I'm like, hey, if you turn to me, if you turn to me, okay, I can bring you to the Father. Because none may come to the Father except through me. So why don't you come with me over here? And so Jesus crosses that line, and he comes over, and he reconciles mankind to God. That's what happens. That is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. None may come to the Father except through me. Okay, go back to your place real quick. We're going we're to do this again. All right, so that is the great story of reconciliation. That is the one that we all know. That is salvation. That is John 3, 16 and 17, okay? But playing out in Philemon is the exact same story, but on a smaller scale, a scale we can relate to every day of our lives. I'm Paul again, and Paul goes to Philemon, and he's like, hey, man, why don't you come with me, all right? Just, just walk me with me for a little bit. Look, man, I know Onismus has done some things, all right, but I know him. I've gotten to know him. I've shared Christ with him, man. He has accepted him. He loves him, and he loves you, and you know what? He's sorry. And so, Onismus, if you could come here for a second. I want you to meet Philemon, and Philemon, I want you to meet Onismus once again, okay? Because you guys, you're brothers, it's not, it's, here's what I want you to know. You and I are one in Christ. And you and I are one in Christ. What you guys need to realize is that means that the two of you are one in Christ. Okay? All right, you guys can go down. Give everyone a hand. Thank you, thank you, thank you for coming up here. They, wonderful people. Paul is making this very extremely important point, and that is that if you are in Christ, you are one with your brothers and sisters. Koinonia, body life. You are intrinsically connected to them, and you have to be reconciled to them because the only person that's hurting is you. The only person that's hurting is me. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close with this, and I actually mean that. I'll be done in just a couple minutes, not... Not 25 from now, I promise. But this is all your fault, because I asked if anyone was in a rush and no one raised their hand. <laughs> so we're taking our time. So, Philemon, Onismus, and Paul playing the role of Christ. Verses 1 through 7, Paul is telling Philemon, you're one with me. Verses 10 through 14, He's telling Philemon, Onismus is one with me. In verses 15 through 20, he's saying, I'm going to bring the two of you together because if I'm one with him and I'm one with you, the two of you are one. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here. For, the, for Pastor Scott's sake, I decided to look up the name Onismus and what it means. And I'm actually really glad I did because it's kind of hilarious. You know what Onismus means? means useful. It means useful. <laughs> and uh, here in uh, verses 10 and 11, I appeal to you for my child Onismus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. He literally, it's a pun that Paul is making here. Hey, useful was useless to you, but now he's useful to me, and he's useful to you. Useless Useful, it's a little confusing, but it's a point that, that Paul is making, right? Onismus is your brother. Onismus is your brother. You guys, you, you, you understand that, that Onismus is, is, is your brother? Okay, because he's your brother too. All right, moving on. 
So Paul tells Philemon, you've had him as a slave. He ran away. It was terrible. Here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to reconcile because the relationship that you will have after you reconcile will be better and deeper than the one that you had before. Better and deeper. Look how, how he ends uh, uh, this, this verse. I'm, I close it. I think it's verse 14. <clears throat> it's not. <laughs> he tells Philemon to put his arm around him, to walk with him, to care for him. Right? So if you consider me a partner of Philemon, if you identify yourself with me, welcome him as you would welcome me. And so, like I said at the beginning of, of this time, you might have someone in your mind, a Santiago. Um, Angela, can you come on and play a little bit? There's a reason I wanted you to write it down. Hopefully some of you did, or you made a note on your phone or something. Because here's the, the, the so what for this message. Here's the thing that I'm leaving you with. In this story, God is telling you, hopefully, one of three things. Either... You are Philemon, and there's an Onismus in your life. There's a Santiago in your life that you need to be reconciled to. Or maybe you are the Onismus in someone else's story, and you've done something terrible, and you've wounded someone, and that shame has kept you away for months or years, and you feel God is telling you, be reconciled to your brother, to your sister. Here's what I want you to do. Ask for help. What does this story tell us? Remember earlier I said forgiveness takes one, reconciliation's a little harder because it takes two. It doesn't actually take two. It, it takes three. It takes three. For Philemon and Onismus, they needed Paul. For mankind and God, we needed Christ. So if you are Philemon or you are Onismus, you need a Paul. And so if you get a phone call this week, if you get a phone call this week from someone who says, I really want to bring you guys together and deal with this, here's what your answer is. Yes. Accept it. Take that step. Maybe instead of being a Santiago or a Carlos, You've identified with the sister. Maybe there's someone, two people in your life whose relationship has been torn apart. And this entire time you've been thinking about those two people, how much you love them, how much you care about them, how much it wounds and grieves you to see them separated and to see them at odds with each other. If that's you, if you feel like Paul in this story, then here's what I want you to do. Reach out to them individually. Invite them to lunch or to coffee or something and tell them, hey, can I just get the three of us at a table and can we talk? It takes three. And so if you are Philemon or Onismus, you need help, accept it. Ask for it. And if you're Paul, reach out. Offer that help. Reconciliation takes three.
I've dealt with a lot of unforgiveness in my life. Uh, for me, though, uh, most of it is kind of geared towards myself. <laughs> so maybe you're the unnamed fourth party in this story. Maybe you've got great relationships with pretty much everyone. Maybe you haven't really felt the sting of, of betrayal for people, but, but instead you are at odds with your past self. Or maybe you're at odds with your present self. Like Paul, the things that you love you don't do and the things that you hate you do. Paul was already saved when he wrote those words. And so maybe that's you. Maybe the, the person that you need to reconcile yourself with is yourself. It still takes someone else. It still takes Christ. But he can be that person for you. He can bring that reconciliation for you. And so that's why this morning we're not just talking about forgiveness. That's why we're talking about reconciliation. Because it's more than just forgiving. It's taking an enemy and making them a friend. It's taking someone you're at odds with and saying, I love you. Being able to see him and wrap your arms around him and give him a hug. So this week, be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit, the prompting of God, whether you're Philemon or Onismus or Paul, whether you're Carlos or Santiago or the sister. Listen for God's direction. Ask for help. I'm here, Pastor Scott's here, Pastor John, Pastor Sandra. Pastor Garrett, we're all here, waiting, happy to help. You're not a burden. You're not a burden. You're the reason we're here. We love you guys. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for everyone who's uh, in this room right now and, and those who are watching online. Lord, that you would soften the hearts of people who are at odds with each other, soften the hearts of enemies. Let this be a church of reconciliation. Let this be a church where people grow together truly and that it's not just words that we say, but that we actually mean it, that family is more than just flesh and blood, but it is the people that we choose to put around us, that we are one in Christ, that we are brothers and sisters So, Lord, help me to be reconciled to those that, that I need to be. Help me to reconcile myself to who I used to be and be okay with the story that's gotten me to where I am today. And, Lord, for, for everyone here, help us to hear from you and to act on what you tell us to do. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Would you stand for the benediction? And we'll get you out of here just in time to beat the Baptists to lunch. <laughs> I think. I don't know. That's just a joke people say. <laughs> now unto him who is able to keep you from falling. It's in Jude, just so you know. Read Jude. He can keep you from stumbling. Lean on that. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his throne with love and exceeding joy be all power and glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace. God bless you.